Uh, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 16, verses 16 through 22. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles and your smartphone apps. It's also printed for you on page 10 in the order of worship there, and it'll be on slides as well. And it is our tradition here at Sycamore to stand for the reading of God's Word. So would you please, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning <clears throat> from John chapter 16. These are the words of Jesus. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We praise you because you are the God of resurrection power. You are the God who brought our Lord Jesus back from the grave, and we praise you. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, that you sent your spirit to inspire people to write your truth that we might know you and know your grace and know your son and know your gospel. And we pray even now you would send your spirit to open this text up to us. Show us yet again the truth of your grace and our desperate need of it. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. Well, in case you missed it when I first said good morning, I love Easter. This is a great, great holiday. I do. I love Easter. You know what else I love? And this is some, I don't know why this, I feel like I'm confessing something here, but there's such pressure not to be this person. I love happy endings. I do. You know how as you're a child, you like sweet things and you don't like bitter things. And as you grow up, you, like to, you, you start to appreciate bitter things and savory things more. You've never heard a child go, I just love savory things, right? <laughs> Give me sugar. So I, I, apparently, emotionally, you're supposed to like that too. As you get older, you're supposed to you know, like the happy stuff less and less and the sad things more and more. I didn't get that memo. Okay, I love happy endings. And I hate sad endings. I went through this phase in college where I like, tried to wear a lot of black and drink coffee from really small cups and, 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 and like films. Not movies, films. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where like everything is messed up, everything ends messed up, and like the screen fades to black, the plot's not resolved, and all of a sudden cursive writing comes across thin, F-I-N, and cue sad music. And I'm like, what in the world was that? And, and the people around me, usually wearing black and drinking coffee out of little cups, are like, oh, it was such a portrayal of the human condition, don't you think? And, and I was like, it was like, you know, uh, a really good depiction of like the terror of non-being juxtaposed to the horror of existence. And I'm like, that was awful. What are you talking about? 
And they're like, you know, the people who wear flannel and denim and like the Avengers is over there. I'm like, oh, sweet, I'm out of here. Because that was terrible. Because what I don't like is I don't like catastrophe. And even boys and girls who are still in the service, you may not know what that word means, but you, you, can tell, you don't want that, right? You don't want catastrophe in your life. I hate catastrophe. That's what I don't like. It's the point in a story where everything just comes undone. A couple years ago, Nikki and I read together the uh, classic African novel called Things Fall Apart. And big surprise, that's the whole plot. And it just made me grumpy. I don't like that. You know who else hated that catastrophe stuff? Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He coined a word to be the opposite of catastrophe because he hated it so much. He took the Greek word for good, which is you, and he smashed it to the beginning called eucatastrophe. I love that, a eucatastrophe. It's the point in the story where everything is dark, everything is sorrowful. The plot has come to the point where something really, really bad is about to happen. You can just feel it, right? But instead of everything falling apart, instead of everything exploding and just destroying everything, everything unraveling, all the good, the hero actually makes everything come back together. And a happy ending is ensured. There's an explosion of joy and there's a triumph of happiness instead of darkness and sorrow. We need that word, catastrophe. See, Tolkien was a Christian and he invented that word specifically for today, Easter day. If you want to, you can look at the front of your bulletin or you'll have it on a slide. I wanna read to you the actual quote where he, used, where he talks about this from Tolkien. He says this, he says, the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible in the greatest story and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy. That's Easter week right there. We have the joy and the explosion and expectation of Palm Sunday. We have the somber and hinting darkness of the Last Supper on Thursday. We have the catastrophe of the cross on Friday. We have the boating and, and darkness and sadness of, of Saturday. And today we have Easter Sunday morning. We have the catastrophe of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, pulls us out of sorrow and tosses us into joy. I just love that phrase, just tosses us into joy. I want you to think about that, Jesus just grabbing you and tossing you into joy. One of the things I love to do with my kids, why I still can, is I grab them and I'll just throw them as high as I can in the air. And one of the saddest moments is when they're too big and I can't do it that much. I actually literally started, I, don't, I know I don't look like it, but I started lifting weights because I got tired of not being able to throw them. So I was like, I don't, as old as you get, I'm gonna try to throw you. And one day like, Daddy, why do you like to throw us so much? I say, because the day I meet Jesus, I'm gonna say, throw me! Because no one ever throws Daddy. That's a great, tosses us into joy. That's what Jesus is gonna give us. That's the joy of Easter Sunday morning. That's, so to experience that joy of the resurrection, it's gotta be right up against the sorrow of the crucifixion. And so this passage in John 16 takes us back a step to Thursday night. And we'll work our way forward through Easter from the perspective of the disciples. And so the first thing we see here is we see a shock of, thor- of sorrow. So it's Thursday night, they're in the upper room. Jesus has given them this hard truth. It's kind of brought them down a bit. Now he wants to give them joy. He wants to prepare them for what's coming. And he tells them, he says, look guys, in a little while I'm gonna go and you're gonna be sad. It's almost as if he's talking to children. 
who don't understand, and they show they really don't understand at all. This isn't a side, by the way. I don't know if this encourages you, but don't you love how often the disciples have Jesus right there, and he says something to them, and they're like, huh? Right? You ever read something in the Bible and you don't understand it? You're, you're right there with them. And you, should, you know what I do when I get to something in the scriptures I don't understand? I skip it and move on. Just keep reading. Okay? And the, the disciples are like, what's he talking about? I don't, I don't understand. And I love how Jesus is like, it's okay. You're going to be sad. So he kind of zooms in. See, they have no categories. They have this idea of this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus is like, well, actually, I'm going to do this. And they're like, yeah, that doesn't fit what we want you to be. So we're just going to say, I don't understand. Instead of actually listening and believing, we're like, we're going to kind of stick with our, our thing first for a while. You're going to have to pry this from our hands, Jesus. And he says, oh, okay, I, I can do that. So since they're confused, he tells them straight up, if you look with me at verse 20, the, very, the first part, he says, look, here's what's going to happen first thing. I say to you, you will weep and lament. A- and they did. I mean, this morning, I want to put you in the mind of the disciples. Let's try to walk their path these last few days of their life. I mean, this man had been their whole life for three years. They'd given up everything for him. He was the sinner. They sacrificed for him. They loved him. And then it really happens so fast. Right after this stuff, Jesus prays over them. They go outside to a garden, and he is arrested and taken away. And before lunch the next day, he's on the cross. It's that fast. And their shock and their sorrow at the loss of Jesus was real. They didn't understand. All their hopes, all their dreams died with Jesus that Friday afternoon. They didn't get it then. Jesus told them, you're not going to understand then, but they would get it later. The cross was not a defeat. It was a victory. Jesus died to take care of the real problem with people. See, the teaching of Scripture is unclear and unwavering. We aren't sick. We aren't broken. We are dead in our sins. Each of us has sinned and fallen short of the perfection that a holy God demands. The punishment that we deserve because of that is our sin. And Jesus took that on himself. The cross is where his death, our death, is undone. And we are given grace. They didn't understand all that then. Don't, don't put all that understanding on them. They had no idea as they were watching it. All they knew, they believed this man. They put their hope in this man. They had a bright future with this man, they thought, and then they watched him and their plans die. Everything they had hoped in just came crashing down. And in that moment, they had fear. They had doubt. They wept and they lamented. C.S. Lewis grabs this emotion so well in his book, Grief Observed. After he'd been a longtime bachelor, he got married late in life after he became a Christian, had a wonderful time, and then she dies unexpectedly, or early, not, not necessarily unexpectedly, and he writes this great essay called A Grief Observed, and in that, Lewis asks this. He says, oh God, oh God, why did you take such trouble to force this creature out of its shell if it's doomed to crawl back, to be sucked back into it. He allowed himself to love deeply, and so he suffered greatly at the loss. That's what the disciples are going through right here. They wept, they lamented, they were sorrowful, they were undone. If you have grieved 
a significant loss. You get this, don't you? The death of a loved one, the death of a dream, the death of a future hope, the death of one life path that you really thought was going to happen. You know that feeling, don't you? The heaviness, the burden, struggling to breathe. I just read recently that Las Vegas is selling out of appointments for marriages coming up in a couple weeks because on April 21st of this year, the date would be 4321. And people want that on their marriage license for some reason. It's a, it's a unique date. Well, I remember another unique date, 10 cubed, October 10th, 2010. I was a firefighter chaplain and one of the worst accidents on our section of interstate in our department's history happened. I'm not gonna give you the gory details, but it was bad death, children, bad things. I was activated to the scene, and usually I, went, I, I, I didn't know if I was, I was coming as firefighter or as chaplain until I got there, but on my beeper I got, the, I got the 911 capital C, meaning they need chaplain now. And I get there, and the duty crew who had to deal with that was just undone. Just this group of big, burly men just sitting there, dead, emotionless, just couldn't process what they had seen. There were no words, just the empty, vacant faces. That's the disciples on Friday afternoon, all day Saturday, and Sunday morning. And to add insult to that injury, Jesus was also right about the world. Let's look at the middle of verse 20 together. What's it say in the middle of verse 20? He tells them, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. And he was right. The authorities, Rome and Jews, were rejoicing. The Jewish court had won. It was time for celebration. Pilate reluctantly had to deal with a potential uprising, but did. A controversial figure was now taken care of, and all was surprisingly at rest. So they were rejoicing and happy, but the disciples' lives are shattered. It's a catastrophe. Has everything ever fallen apart for you? Have others been rejoicing while you've been undone? The early Christians have been there too. And you're going to see that Christianity has the resources to help you deal with that true life emotional roller coaster, to heal you from that pain. <clears throat> In the gospel, you can be taken from catastrophe to you catastrophe. Look with me now as we see an explosion of joy. So as we've seen, Jesus is right about the first part of verse 20. He's right about the middle part of verse 20. Now let's look at the last part of verse 20. What does he promise him? He says, your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus tells them on Thursday night, but then he gives them a hint, a promise, a picture of what's coming. Let's zoom in on verse 21. What does he say in verse 21? He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I've never given birth, obviously, so, but I've been to five. And, you know, please don't judge us at this point. Three of them were at home on purpose. One of them was without help, not on purpose. So I've been there, all right? I've been there. In fact, my last one I caught myself. And here's what's really cool if you're a medical person. The water never broke, so he was still in the sack. It was really cool looking. So 
So it looked like those orcs being born in the second Lord of the Rings movie. Anyway, that's a different thing. So <laughs> well, what's happening? The room is filled with that expectancy and there's tension, right? There's furrowed brows and there's crying and there's stress and there's noise. And then a child is born and there's an explosion of joy. There's an explosion of excitement. All this pain, all this travail is forgotten by mama a lot quicker than it's forgotten by papa who watched it. Let me tell you that right now. And Jesus says that's going to be their reaction. Explosion of joy. Tolkien's you catastrophe is going to happen. Everything is going to come together in this fantastic, happy ending. This is really important. Make sure I don't want you to hear what I am not saying. Because Jesus is not saying that they will be free from all sorrow. And if you're a good Christian, you get to be happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. And if anything bad happens, you must not be living right. That is not what Jesus is saying. And I am sorry that people have taught that as biblical Christianity. Most of the men hearing Jesus say these words would meet extremely bad ends. And for us, man, life happens, right? Christians get sad. Junk happens that takes away your joy. The promise is all the sorrow which we endure will be swallowed up by joy. It's even more specific than that. It's not merely that, gr- it's not merely that grief would be swallowed by joy. It's this, that the very thing that caused them overwhelming grief, the cross itself, would become the reason for rejoicing. And think about that promise. The cross ruined the disciples' life. But then in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, the cross was the best news. I mean, the cross is where we come, right? Exhausted from performing for God, trying to be good people, as we define good, whatever that means, worn out from our failure to live up to our own standards, And at the cross, we hear Jesus say, stop trying and rest. I've done the work so you can have grace. Rest. And then in the resurrection, we hear God the Father shout to the world, I accept the work of Jesus. Come and receive my grace. See, we saw this in the disciples themselves. In Luke's account of the resurrection, when Jesus appears to his disciples, Luke captures the raw emotion of the moment so great. This is one of the most enigmatic verses in Scripture. I love this. Luke 24, 41 says this. It says, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Isn't that a great description? How do you disbelieve for joy? Let me chew on that one for a little while. I mean, I I don't know for sure, but I I think the phrase it seems too good to be true kind of comes to mind. They disbelieved. Do you know why they disbelieved, by the way? This is a hard one. You you know why? Because people don't rise from the dead. (laughs) That bit of good news from the women of Jesus himself showing up, suddenly the disciples have hope. I mean, you know how it is, right? Right? You can be in a funk, you can be downcast. You don't wanna see anyone, life is just not going well and and one piece of good news changes everything. Now I know, again, at this point with five children, this may seem, well, so what? But when we were first married for the first several years of our marriage, we we had significant fertility issues and we we were told by more than one doctor that you guys are just never gonna have kids. And, And I was just like, yeah, that's not true. 
you're lazy, you're fired, I just kept getting better doctors. But it was really hard. That knowledge was like the background noise of our life. Every moment of joy and laughter and lightness would all of a sudden be cut short because we remember we're gonna be infertile. And we were willing to adopt, it wasn't an issue, we just had this, we just knew we were supposed to have our own children. And I remember sitting in one of those study closets in our grad school dorm, doing something probably with, with a dead guy, and all of a sudden Nikki comes up behind me and shows me a pregnancy test and says, I'm pregnant. And just explosion of joy and happiness and it's all that lifted away and everything changed with one word of good news. Just lifted this whole aspect of our life was gone in a moment. That's what Jesus promises here. Look with me at verse 22. He says this, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. Isn't that a great promise? I love how he phrases it, and no one will take it from you. Because people try to take your joy, don't they? People don't like it when you're joyful. Have you noticed that? It messes people up. They, they're uncomfortable. And instead of them letting it be contagious, they kind of want to stop it. I mean, imagine what it's going to be like when we finally hit herd immunity, right? When they finally say, we're there. Normal life is no longer going to kill you, right? It's, you can go back to, you can do things together. You can hug your grandchildren again. Imagine the freedom. Imagine the joy. Imagine just the lightness, just how everything is just going to feel different. That's what the disciples had, but even so much more when they saw Jesus. They have the resurrected Jesus. He's back from the dead. The joy of Jesus is theirs permanently and no one can take it from them. Let me ask you, do you have such joy? As the, the bedrock of your life, what's the foundation? Is it joy? No matter what happens, your center, your true north, is it joy? D do you want it to be? Because that's what Jesus offers in the gospel. I want to zoom in on that last phrase there in verse 22. Says, no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says it right here. No one can steal your joy. They can't have it. They can try. But if it's your foundation, if it's your bedrock, if he himself has poured it into the cavity of your soul, no one can take it out. What an incredible promise. Joy can be yours. Irrevocable joy can be yours for the taking if the resurrection of Jesus is real. If you appropriate that resurrection for yourself. I mean, if Jesus was just another martyr, so what about Jesus? Yeah, I said it. I mean, honestly, there have been thousands of martyrs, many of them with more compelling life stories. Yeah, I said that out loud too. What's the big deal about Jesus, right? I mean, honestly, if there is no resurrection, who cares about his death? I pointed it out at the, at the, at the welcome, and for those of you who weren't here, all of us, if you want to turn back, you can look. There's no slide. 1 Corinthians, Paul writing about this, a mere, most likely within 30 years of the resurrection, early Christianity says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, it's on the inside of your cover. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. 
and you are still in your sins. That's biblical Christianity. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity, period. That is the center, hardcore truth of, Christ, of Christianity right there. I know evangelicals and people who really believe the Bible have been in the news lately, and apparently they, they have strange beliefs. They like to wear red hats and breathe fire, apparently. I don't know any of those people. But I do know that biblical Christians believe in a historical bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's what biblical Christians believe. Some of you have been around church for a long time and you've kind of just been nodded and smiled at that. But we live in an era of materialistic scientism I didn't say scientific materialism, materialistic scientism that makes believing in that feel really, really dumb. You don't go into your boss and say, I believe in the bodily resurrection to Jesus. And he's like, really? Do you believe two plus two equals four? Because one of those, in their mind, those two things can't coexist. And you've been kind of playing with this resurrection thing. You've been kind of holding it there. I want to challenge you right now. You in no way hold to a Christianity that has been historically recognized as true for 2,000 years if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, period. It may call itself Christianity. It may be preached from pulpits, but has nothing to do with the faith once delivered for all to the saints. Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, or we are perpetuating a farce. We're making it up. There is no third option. And it's been that way from the very beginning. Paul's statement there in 1 Corinthians, again, was written most likely within 30 years of the crucifixion. That quickly, Christian, like, this is true. Which means there'd be people alive who were there they would be like, I'm sorry, and I was there. The tomb is full. He never came out. There's thousands of witnesses who could come up. You know, it's one of the things I love. You know, you, they, to, this, to this day, we really don't know where the tomb of Jesus is. Now, I know you can go to Jerusalem, and you can pay some money. Many, maybe you, many of you in the room have done this, and you can go see a tomb. But the historical reality is that within a generation, they didn't know where it was. Does that seem odd? I mean, if Jesus is such a big deal, wouldn't they want to know where his tomb was, right? Well, I got this illustration from a fellow pastor. He goes, you know, have you ever known a family where a child has died? Very often that child, if it had, if it had its own space, if the child, if he or she had her own room, that room is not touched for years, if ever. It, it becomes a shrine to the life that was lost, doesn't it? But if the child all of a sudden came back, would they keep the shrine? The reason that the early Christians didn't care to make a shrine about the death of Jesus was because they had him. He came back. They didn't need that. They had him. And they themselves, as new life in Christ, the new church, they were the shrine to Jesus. The earliest Christians didn't care because they had Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, if he defeated death and he now offers you life and irrevocable joy, that's a game changer. 
You can't be neutral about that. You can't be meh about that. It's either true or it's false. Easter Sunday is one of those Sundays where you know what? Here's the deal, I'm sorry, you can't play anymore. He either rose from the dead or he didn't. The Bible says he did. The Bible's either telling the truth or the Bible's either lying. And if the Bible's true about that, then it's true about other things it says about you as well. See, biblical Christianity recognizes that life has real pain Life has real sorrow, but that pain is given meaning in the resurrection. That's the joy that Jesus offers to bring meaning to that pain. Hear me if you're sitting here and you want that kind of joy. The resurrection is the key. Jesus Christ rose from the grave as Lord. Place your faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord, and you will be rescued, the Bible promises. And you can have joy. Like right now, those problems at work, that struggling relationship, that, that alienation you feel between your spouse, even though you love and care for each other, there's always a something there. That, that, that lingering problem in your life that just won't go away. The joy of Jesus can saturate all of that and, get, and help you walk through it. Don't you want that? Man, I do. I need that. So as I wrap this up, I mean, Easter is not about eggs. It's not about chocolate. And it certainly doesn't have a thing to do with rabbits. Okay, Easter is about the fact that Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died before a holy God. And in his resurrection, he guarantees and purchases our place in God's very family. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. If Jesus is not raised, we're still in our sins. The disciples were there. They saw him die. They wept and they mourned. But on the third day, Jesus rose again, actually bodily, and the disciples were there. They saw him alive and they rejoiced. And you can rejoice too. Whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, never been to church before, you've gone to church or mass occasionally, you're here for family reasons, whatever. If your life is not saturated by joy, like the kind promised here, it's time to cast off everything you've called religion. It's time to cast off everything you've called Christianity and place your simple faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And he will give you irrevocable joy and do it now don't wait gracious God and heavenly father your resurrection of Jesus is the miracle of miracles that changed the world and father we rejoice that you've given us the ability to believe it Lord because it really is kind of ridiculous. But it's true. And Father, we pray that you would cement the reality of the resurrection deep into our hearts. Would you drive it in there by faith? And Lord, we ask even this morning you would give us that faith that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and crucified and resurrected, that he would fulfill his promise of drawing all people to himself. 
Now, Lord God, show us yet again your grace. Build your kingdom and give us this joy. We ask all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.